Section 19 of Stupor Mundi, The Life and Times of Frederick II by Lionel Alshorn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 10, The Second Excommunication, Part 1. Until the year 1238, Frederick's career had been marked by a long succession of triumphs and marred by no signal disasters. He had secured the imperial crown, had erected a despotic monarchy in his kingdom, had led a crusade more fruitful in its results than any which had preceded it, had subdued for a while the aggressive violence of the pope, had overthrown with ease the rebellion of his son, and had commenced a war against the Lombards which seemed destined to make his lordship supreme in northern Italy. The siege of Brescia, however, stands out among the events of his life as the turning point in his fortunes. From henceforth he was to know the bitterness of defeat and disaster, of reverses which, though never irremediable, were to arrest the expansion of his power and to render it subject to those fluctuations from which it had hitherto been remarkably free. The star of his fortunes was henceforth to hover uncertainly between wax and wane, until finally the inevitable eclipse of death extinguished its light for ever. The walled city of Brescia, against which in the beginning of August 1238 he led his vast and cosmopolitan army, might well fear that a terrible vengeance was about to overtake it. But a Lombard city at bay was no easy prey. Its citizens, hoping for no mercy if they surrendered to their implacable lord, resolved to die gloriously in the defense of their homes, rather than submit meekly to ignominious and fearful punishment. They had within their walls the most skillful military engineer of the day, one Calamandrino, who had been arrested on his way to the imperial camp, and offered the alternative of death or service in the Brescian cause. He chose to live, and his wooden towers and bulwarks, his mangonels and trebuchets, defeated all attempts to take the city by sudden storm or by the steady battering down of its walls. The siege was prosecuted in no gentle manner. Some captured Brescians were bound to the emperor's moving towers to avert the storm of arrows, stones, and fireballs with which they were assailed. The Brescians in turn bound their prisoners to crosses and suspended them along the walls where the showers of missiles were thickest. Constant sallies were made by the besieged, which, owing to the lack of vigilance in the imperial ranks, were frequently attended with success, and Frederick himself narrowly escaped capture on one occasion. Two months passed, and the city still maintained its defense with undiminished vigor. Frederick grew impatient of the delay, and it became increasingly difficult to find food and forage for his great army. Finally, he raised the siege in disgust, disbanded the greater part of his troops, and contented himself with a visit to a few of the loyal towns who would soothe his ruffled pride by their ovations. He would have been wise, after this reverse, to have abstained from any action which might provoke the Pope to take advantage of his temporary eclipse. Instead, he proceeded to add more fuel to the fire which was smoldering in Gregory's breast, he arranged a marriage between his favorite natural son, Enzo, and Adelasia, the queen of Sardinia, 
and dispatched Enzo with a body of knights to the island where the wedding was consummated. This Adelasia was a widow, and her former husband had paid homage to the Pope for his realm. Frederick, however, asserted that Sardinia was an old territory of the empire, and his son naturally supported the imperial claim. Gregory protested in vain. I have sworn, declared Frederick, as the world well knows, to recover the scattered parts of the empire, and this I will not be slow to fulfill. Gregory immediately began to prepare for the offensive and entered into a league with Venice and Genoa. The Guelphs throughout northern Italy were stirred into renewed activity by the papal legates. The truce between Pope and Emperor had come to its inevitable end. On Palm Sunday, 1239, Gregory assembled his cardinals in the Church of St. Peter and once again pronounced the awful sentence of excommunication against his enemy. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and of the blessed apostles Peter and Paul, we excommunicate and anathematize the Emperor Frederick. Nine charges were repeated against Frederick, which had been published some months before. He was accused of stirring up sedition in Rome against the Pope. The old offense of oppressing the Sicilian church was again recounted. He had thrown obstacles in the way of the recovery of the Holy Land, and had rejected the arbitration of the Pope in the affairs of Lombardy. These and many other accusations the Emperor had already refuted in calm and dignified terms, but the Pope chose to ignore his denials. Frederick was at Padua when the news of his excommunication came to him. For a time he restrained his anger. He declared his amazement at so enormous a punishment for crimes he had never committed. Peter de Vinia delivered an eloquent discourse on the word of Ovid. Punishment, when merited, is to be borne with patience, but when it is undeserved, with sorrow. No emperor, he declared, since the days of Charlemagne has been more just, gentle, and magnanimous, or has given so little cause for the hostility of the church. To the Roman citizens, Frederick wrote in words of reproach, Was there no one amongst you, he asked, to rise in our behalf and speak a word for us after all our endeavors to raise the Roman name to its old renown? Without your connivance, our blasphemer would never have dared to carry his insolence so far. If you are slack in defending our honor, we shall withdraw our favor from the city of Rome. The letter in which the emperor vindicated himself before the princes of Christendom was couched in less restrained terms. Cast your eyes around, lift up your ears, O sons of men, that ye may hear and behold the universal scandal of the world, the dissensions of nations, and lament the utter extinction of justice. Wickedness has gone out from the elders of Babylon, who hitherto appeared to rule the people, whilst judgment is turned into bitterness the fruits of justice into wormwood. Sit in judgment, ye princes, ye people, take cognizance of our cause. The Pope's duplicity and unreasoning hostility, his endeavors to seduce Frederick's subjects from their allegiance, and his encouragement of the Lombard rebels are then set forth at considerable length. Notwithstanding the Emperor's refutation of the charges made against him, the Pope had proceeded to excommunicate him, though many of the cardinals, if report spoke truly, had remonstrated. Be it that we had offended the Pope by some public and singular insult, 
how violent and inordinate these proceedings, as though, if he had not vomited forth the wrath that boiled within him, he must have burst. We grieve from our reverence for our mother the church. Could we accept the Pope, thus our avowed enemy, as an equitable judge to arbitrate in our dispute with Milan? Milan favored by the Pope, though by the testimony of all religious men, swarming with heretics. We hold Pope Gregory as an unworthy vicar of Christ, an unworthy successor of St. Peter, not in disrespect to his office but of his person, who sits in his court like a merchant weighing out dispensations for gold, himself signing, writing the bulls, doubtless counting the money. He is unworthy of his place, we therefore appeal, to a council. He has but one real cause of enmity against me, that I refuse to marry to his niece my son Enzo, now king of Sardinia. But ye, O kings and princes of the earth, lament not only for us but for the whole church, for her head is sick, her prince is like a roaring lion, in the midst of her sits a frantic prophet, a man of falsehood, a polluted priest. He wishes to overthrow Caesar first, he will then tread down the rest of the princes of the earth. For the benefit of the lower clergy and common people who would be most readily moved by scriptural allusions, a strangely worded circular was sent around the nations. The chief priest and the Pharisees, it ran, have met in council against their lord, against the Roman emperor. What shall we do, say they, for this man is triumphing over all his enemies? If we let this man go, he will subdue Lombardy, and will come and take away our place and nation. He will give the vineyard of the Lord of Sabaoth to other husbandmen, and will miserably destroy us. Let us smite him quickly with our tongues, let our arrows be no more concealed but go forth, so go forth as to strike, so strike as to wound, so be he wounded as to fall before us, so fall as never to rise again, and then will he see what profit he has in his dreams. The Pharisees sitting in Moses' seat have openly perverted judgment, and have bound an innocent and just prince. This father of fathers who is called the servant of servants, shutting out all justice, is become a deaf adder, refuses to hear the vindication of the king of the Romans, hurls malediction into the world as a stone is hurled from a sling, and sternly and heedless of all consequences exclaims, What I have written, I have written. The master of masters said not, Take arms and shield the arrow and the sword, but peace be with you. Thou, the Pope, art ever seeking something to devour, nor can the whole world appease thy craving maw. Peter said unto the lame man, Silver and gold have I none, but thou, if the heap of money which thou adorest begins to dwindle, immediately begins to limp with the lame man seeking anxiously what is of this world. Let our mother church then bewail that the shepherd of the flock is become a ravening wolf, eating the fatlings of the flock, neither binding up the broken nor bringing the wanderer home to the fold, but a lover of schism, the head and author of offense, the father of deceit. O grief, rarely dost thou expend the vast treasures of the church on the poor, but as Anyani bears witness thou hast commanded a wonderful mansion, as it were, the palace of the sun to be built, 
forgetful of Peter, who long had nothing but his net. All power is from God, writes the Apostle, whoso resists the power resists the authority of God. Either receive then into the bosom of the church her elder son, who without guile incessantly demands pardon, otherwise the strong lion who feigns sleep with his terrible roar will bring fat bulls from the ends of the earth, will plant justice, take over the rule of the church, plucking up and destroying the horns of the proud. More lurid and violent still was Gregory's reply. Out of the sea is a beast arisen whose name is all overwritten blasphemy. He has the feet of a bear, the jaws of a ravening lion, the mottled limbs of a panther. He opens his mouth to blaspheme the name of God and shoots his poisoned arrows against the tabernacle of the Lord and the saints that dwell therein. This beast is striving to grind everything to pieces with its iron claws and teeth. Look carefully into the head, the middle, and the lower parts of this beast, Frederick, called the emperor, and consider the truth. We count it an honor to be abused by such a wicked man. We had rather not be praised by him. Now weigh in the scales the benefits which the church has heaped upon this dragon. She covered him with a cloak in his tender years snatched him from the toils of the hunters and raised him to the empire. She gave him, moreover, the kingdom of Jerusalem and upheld him against the rebellion of his son Henry. Yet this staff of the impious, this hammer of the earth, has robbed, banished, and imprisoned the Sicilian clergy and has given the churches over to adulterous embraces. He has built mosques on the ruins of churches and has forbidden the preaching of the crusade. He has taken from the nobles their castles, and has forced those brought up in crimson to lie in the mire. He has reduced the barons and knights of Sicily to the state of slaves. Most part of the people there have no beds, wear sackcloth, and eat coarse bread made of millet. This man, out of thirst for gold, has reduced the kingdom of Sicily to ashes and sold justice, he has built schools for the perdition of souls. This man, who delights in being called the forerunner of Antichrist, has now openly thrown aside the mask. He says we have no power to excommunicate him, thus like a heretic, denying the right to bind and loose which our Lord gave unto Peter. This pestilent king maintains, to use his own words, that the world has been deceived by three impostors, Jesus Christ, Moses, and Mohammed that two of these died in honor, and the third was hanged upon a tree. Even more, he has asserted distinctly and loudly that those are fools who aver that God, the omnipotent creator of the world, was born of a virgin. Cease to wonder that he has drawn against us the dagger of calumny, for he has risen up to extirpate from the earth the name of the Lord. Rather to repel his lies by simple truth, to refute his sophisms by the arguments of holiness, we exorcise the head, the body, and the extremities of this beast, who was none other than the Emperor Frederick. End of section 19